Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Phil Sharp was a friend. He was a writer. And he had just gone through a divorce with four kids. I was going through a divorce with one kid. I was having a very difficult time. I said, how'd it go with your divorce? He said, fine. I said, fine? He said, yeah, it was simple. You had four kids. I have one. I'm going through hell. He said, all she wanted was my Joan Davis reruns. He had written and conceived the Joan Davis show, which was a major show. And he just gave her the reruns and he was free. At which moment I decided I have to do a situation comedy. (laughs) Norman Lear didn't just do one sitcom. By the 1980s, he'd made the genre his own. Then he quit. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Norman Lear. By 1975, he was responsible for six network sitcoms, all running simultaneously. All in the Family, Sanford and Son, and Maud, all worrying their networks with storylines about race and abortion. Sound stressful? I think there is stress and there is joyful stress. On every single problem show or episode or whatever, the wind-up was a performance in front of a live audience and laughter. Then later, Riz Ahmed. He's an actor and a rapper. He's in the new Star Wars movie, Rogue One. It's a gig that he dreamed about getting when he was a kid. And now, as a British-Pakistani actor, it's one he's grateful isn't tied to his skin color. You get these stages of representation sometimes of minorities or groups that aren't that visible. First of all, you get the stereotype, which is like, you know, the shopkeeper, the the terrorist, the cab driver. Then you get the stuff which takes place on ethnicized terrain, but it kind of subverts those dominant narratives, maybe. So that's like Four Lions or Road to Guantanamo that I did. And then, then you get to this point where you're just a guy and you could be playing anyone. I'll talk to Riz about playing terrorists for laughs and also just like, in general, what's it like to be in a Star Wars movie? That's coming up later on. Plus, I'll recommend my favorite very, very, very weird show on television. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. My first guest is Norman Lear. He's not just a guy who created sitcoms. He's a guy who redefined what sitcoms could be. With Sanford and Son, Lear created a show that would give rise to literally dozens of African-American sitcoms. On All in the Family, the characters took on huge topics like war, feminism, race, abortion, and they did it in a way that was totally empathetic to both sides of any issue. Archie Bunker, for all his flaws and all the despicable things he said, ended up becoming one of the most nuanced and beloved sitcom characters of all time. Lear also created The Jeffersons, Maud, Archie Bunker's Place, and more. At one point, he'd created six of the top ten shows on TV. Then in 1981, he founded the progressive group People for the American Way. He's the subject of a new American Masters film on PBS. It's called Norman Lear, Another Version of You. It's on TV and video on demand this week. But before we talk, let's hear a scene from All in the Family, the sitcom that changed everything. What, you you sure it was Sammy Davis Jr.? No, me, it was some Zulu jockey. (laughs) 
I know the man. Besides, you give me a five-buck tip for a buck and a quarter haul anyway. And as fine a gentleman as ever you want to meet. Sat there in the back of the cab talking to me about the weather, all kinds of things, just like a regular person. In fact, if it wasn't for the rear-view mirror there, I'd have thought he was a white guy. What do you gotta say things like that for? What do you mean, what do I gotta say things like that for? What did I say, anyhow? Would you listen to these two? You can't say nothing around here. They twist around everything you say. Norman Lear, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. I like being here. Thank you. Well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so far. I'll get, back, I'll get back to you. Okay, great. <laughs> um, I read that there were multiple pilots turned down for All in the Family. Is that true? No, it was uh, three years before 1968. I made the pilot originally for ABC, and uh, they caused me to make it again. The same script, same two leads, Carol O'Connor, Gene Stapleton. And uh, so I made it twice for them with two different sets of young kids. Turns out to be a blessing because it took a couple of more years before a new uh, president of CBS heard about the show, saw it, and asked me to do it again, but this time promised to put it on the air. So by that time, Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers uh, were available to me, or uh, I knew about them, and made all the difference in the world. There were great shows before, and I think they would have worked, but the chemistry between the four people, uh, when Rob and Sally became part of it, just... It's miracle time. Were you still working the show? Like, were you passing out uh, giant 1974 video cassettes uh, to studio heads, or was it something that you'd given up on? No, no. I Well, did I give up? I went off and made a film called Cold Turkey between the ABC two shows, two pilots, and the CBS order. And actually, uh, you know... People think I was brave as hell <laughs> uh, to stand up to the network when they didn't want this or that. But I had, as a result of Cold Turkey, I had uh, a three-picture offer from United Artists to write, produce, and direct. Uh, I was just emotionally married to all in the family and those characters. And I couldn't think so long as the network wanted to doing anything else. But I did have backup should they have made it impossible for me to do it. It's an incredible commitment to work on a sitcom because you have to make it every week. Like you're making it 25 plus times a year. Um, and if you're successful, you're doing that for years on end. Um, why did you want to do that and not, uh, you know, take a movie deal and uh, – make a movie a year? Well, all of it, either uh, effort, all starts with needing to make a living for a growing family. <laughs> you know, we were working our asses off to make a buck. Uh, everything that came out of all of that came out of all of that. It wasn't anticipated. It wasn't done with knowledge of forethought as to what, where we were going to get with it. Uh, and we were working too hard to be thinking about anything else but the next script. Did you believe that All in the Family was going to be... I mean, I'm sure you believed in All in the Family artistically. You can tell me if you didn't believe in All in the Family artistically. <laughs> Please let me know. Oh, I but, did. 
You know, I'm a permanent member of the audience. I've lived my life sitting down to see something and with the attitude, take me. And uh, I want to be had. I want you to take me. And as an audience member, I worked hard to, to, to help it, to get it. But I also never stopped adoring the laughter, you know, my own laughter. And early on thinking it's adding time to my life. Did you think that it was going to be a hit show? Because uh, it wasn't a huge hit show initially. It was it no, was a claim no. show initially, but not it, a smash and, hit and show. And in some ways it was frowned on. I mean, it was majorly frowned on. Uh, but some very poor reviews at the beginning. But and then they started to get better. Everybody didn't realize what we were trying to do. And, uh, it, you know, if it hadn't gone on in January, it, there might, it might never have happened because what occurred was bad ratings until maybe May or something. When the other two networks shows, there were only three networks, that's hard to believe. <laughs> um, when their shows were going into reruns, we still had a couple to go. So the audience that was there for the other two networks came to us because they'd heard about this new show. And the ratings started to tick up in the last couple of uh, episodes of the initial 13. And that's when the network decided to pick it up. For a while, the show ran with a disclaimer that's shown in the American Masters documentary. <laughs> um, Which that, will be on Tuesday night. Well played. And... I was looking at that disclaimer, and it's so, it's so sincere, <laughs> and so, like it is the lamest thing I've ever seen in my. You know, it, it goes. I don't have the text in front of me, yeah. but it's like, oh, it's an attempt to shed light on you know social conditions in our great nation, and blah 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 blah. That ran before this show that was fresh and new on the air. Um, but there might be something to offend you, so know that you know. Yeah. Go, go with caution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, it's not like a, there's there's zero percent defiance in it. It is completely conciliatory, and as I said, like s absurdly sincere. Um, you'd think that you were about to watch like an after school special or something like that, not a sitcom <laughs> about a family. And uh, I, I wonder if. There was like a discussion about whether that was going to run and uh, what it was going to say before the show premiered or whether that just appeared. Well, if you remember uh, the first episode, uh, Archie and Edith were uh, at church. It was a Sunday morning. It was their 25th wedding anniversary. The kids, Mike and Gloria, were preparing a brunch, surprise brunch, while they were at church. And uh, so they had... Whatever was cooking was cooking, and uh, the balloons were hung, and everything was ready. And they, Archie and Edith, would wouldn't be back for another half hour or so. So Mike thought they would run upstairs, and he coaxed uh, Gloria to run up there with him. They no sooner got upstairs when the front door opened. Archie and Edith were home early because he hated the sermon, <laughs> he hated the minister, and he was fuming. Uh, and they came in early from church. And uh, the kids upstairs heard that, came running down, buttoning a shirt or something. And uh, Archie sees them, and he says, 
11 o'clock of a Sunday morning. That line had to come out. Now, we had gone through all the arguments about spick and spade and heb and this and, you know, Archie's language. Uh, this now was the last moment, and they wanted that line out. And the reason they wanted that line out was it caused the audience to to imagine, to picture what he was talking about happening at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. I said, well, that occurred when they ran upstairs. It's, uh, by the way, if the audience hadn't picked up, it's mommy and daddy stuff that they were doing upstairs. And they were married on top of that. <laughs> it wasn't like they weren't. This knocked me out that CBS thought it would cause people to actually see the picture <laughs> of what might be happening there. Well, and also that they would see the picture, uh, imagine that picture happening at that time when God was probably watching. Yes, 11 o'clock <laughs> on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so, right. Anyway, it was the day the show was on the air. It had been, it was, it was going on three hours earlier, of course, in New York. And I got a call a half hour before it went on in New York to say they were not cutting the line because they had the ability to cut the line. And I had said, cut the line, and I'm out of here. And I would be at uh, United Artists with three pictures. When you said that, what was the tone? This kind of conversation, just like this. I had a good relationship with Bob Wood. These were two opposing points of view. He, I'm sure, didn't think I was, I thought I was wrong, but he didn't think I was out of my mind. Nor did I think he was. I just think he was listening to the wrong inner voice. or He wasn't listening to an inner voice. He was listening to the on the outside. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Norman Lear. He created some of the best-loved sitcoms of all time, including All in the Family, The Jeffersons, and Sanford and Son. The American Masters film Norman Lear, Another Version of You, debuted on PBS this week. How confident were you, especially when you started making the show, that presenting Archie Bunker in this family and having him, you know, have the kind of retrograde views that he had and the the kind of language that he used on network television when there were only three networks was a good idea? Were you absolutely confident or you know why were I, you kind, I, I, did you feel like you were kind of rolling the dice and had an 80-20 chance that it was the right decision? Well, I... I thought I was very confident uh, that it would no, be no big deal with the American people because there was nothing we were doing that they couldn't hear in any schoolyard or up the street, down the street, across the street from each other. We did none of the problems we dealt with uh, were anything. Were all the illnesses or social problems or economic problems or. Up to and including abortion, that was on Moet. You know, it was common in every family in America. Those those problems. Nobody. We weren't educating anybody so much as discussing it. I mean, we weren't introducing new subjects. <laughs> and uh, Archie himself. Uh, you know, I'd like to nickel for everybody who said their dad, their uncle, their grandfather, their you know, their neighbor. Everybody recognized the character. Sitcoms aren't often about actual problems. I mean, you need a problem 
to turn a plot. You know, there's no plot without a conflict. But, you know, usually a sitcom is a comforting, recognizable set of friends on television that you have, and their problems are silly nonsense, misunderstandings. The boss is coming over and we have to make a casserole, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you feel so strongly that the problems on a sitcom should be what you called real problems? I don't know that there was any uh, decision to go in that direction. I just dealt with what I knew and invited other writers to... uh, We all read a couple of newspapers. That was kind of an instruction to everybody. Read a couple of newspapers, pay attention to your family, your wife's problems, your kids' problems in school, you know, their problems as opposed to the social order and and the culture generally. And we we came in and started to talk about what we were all reading. Somebody said, did you see this? Hypertension in black males has risen. Well, wouldn't that be a great subject for Good Times and uh, and John uh, Evans? Uh, And so we did it. And by the way, when we did that specific episode, that's exactly when we learned there were tens of thousands of phone calls to local stations around the country from African-American families that wanted more information. That hadn't happened before. By the time it was in reruns, this was, let's say, October or December, by the time it was in rerun in May, I don't know whether they had taken some of the content out or whether they gave up a commercial, but they did have uh, an advisory at the end of the show, instructing anybody that was interested to call this and that number. You know, sometimes I think about, you know, you and I are sitting in this studio. It's just the two of us in the studio. There's two or three people sitting outside the studio. Um, And once in a while, I kind of flash to the fact that, oh, we're talking to each other in real life here, one-to-one. But listening to this are like football stadiums worth of people like college football stadiums, big football stadiums. And sometimes I'm kind of cowed by that, just you, a little. You know what it causes me to think? What? Every single one of those people filling those stadiums, it took all of their lives, every hour and minute of their lives to get to the moment where they're sitting in the stadium listening to us. It took me 94 years, some months, some weeks, some days, some hours, some minutes, to get here to say what I've just said every split second. There's no contest about it. It's <laughs> it's altogether correct. What was it like for you in the 70s when, you know, it's a, it, at one point you had six of the top ten TV shows on television in a world where there were only three television networks. So literally... Dozens of millions of people were watching each one of the shows that you were in charge of. Um, And, you know, to some extent, you're just trying to make a fun family sitcom. You know what I mean? That's right. (laughs) But but that's absolutely right. No no more than that. We were serious people. All of them, my mind is scanning the faces and memories of the people I worked with large, great collaboration. 
But we were all people who took life seriously and happened to see, understand the foolishness of the human condition. There's no situation that where there isn't something to laugh at. After a break, I'll finish my conversation with Norman Lear. He'll tell me how he managed to adapt a British TV sitcom into an American hit without ever actually having seen the original. Plus, I'll sit down with British rapper and soon-to-be Star Wars star Riz Ahmed. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Election essentials, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make a trip, waiting in line, or waiting for a friend better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Listen up, Midwestern Max Funsters. Do not miss out on the inaugural Chicago Podcast Festival, November 17th through 19th. Catch the hilarious ladies of Lady to Lady and the witty and incisive Ineke and James from Minority Corner. Plus, Bullseye with Jesse Thorne will feature interviews with some pretty heavy hitters like Andre Royo and Dwayne Kennedy. Don't snooze. Don't lose. Tickets are available right now. Visit MaximumFun.org and buy them. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the great TV comedy writer Norman Lear. He's the creator of shows like All in the Family, Maud, and Good Times, and he's the subject of a new PBS documentary, Norman Lear, Another Version of You. I want to talk a little bit about your childhood and the time that you spent before you were the most successful television producer in America. Uh, Your dad was a salesman. Um, Was he out of the house a lot? Uh, he, I don't remember him as a traveler. He was a salesman and a hustler, and he did a lot of naughty things. Um, but I don't remember him traveling, I, except for the one. Uh, he was taking a trip to Oklahoma, and uh, some other guys were involved with it. I remember my mother saying, uh, I don't like those men, Herman. I don't want you dealing with those men. And uh, that's when I heard Stifle, Jeanette. And he would be, and he went. But on this particular trip with those particular guys, when he came back, he was arrested for trying to sell, he tried to sell uh, some fake bonds. And uh, they took him for three years. So that had, I would say, an enormous influence on this nine years old at the time. When you were six, seven, and eight years old, um, what did you think about what your dad did? I'm not sure I understood what he did. And and it was always something different. You know, I remember he was working for a a candy company that made something that was going to put Milky Way out of business. He always was going to make a million dollars in 10 days to two weeks, tops. Tops. Uh, and then he had he ran into a guy who made, uh, invented a pair of slippers with a light in the toe. You know, a little light. So you, you, you get out of bed and you find your way to the bathroom. Uh, and he was going to make a million dollars with that. <laughs> 
it's like a joke about a thing. It is like a joke. I did an episode of Ball in the Family where I actually ran into such a guy, and he was going to make a billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, uh, your father must have been to have made any kind of career in that business and in that world. He must have had charm. Did you feel like... Oh, he had charm, yeah. He leaned into... This is what I loved about him. He leaned into life. You know, like Arthur Miller's salesman. He went out into the world with a shoe shine and a, you know, fire in his eyes. One of the things that it seems like to me is it can be really hard to have a parent who is that kind of outwardly fun and charming and like beguiling like you're fascinated by your parents anyone and it can be really hard if that person is also someone where you know when you get sucked in you don't know what you're going to get right that can be really scary especially when you're a kid well when you it's so interesting i there was no way to depend on him i don't know that i knew that at the time but it turned out and yet he did some grandstand things that were just amazing. One, I, used, I, I did an episode on Maud, and it won an Emmy. And the story as it existed with my dad was that I loved theater as a, from my earliest memories. And uh, my favorite play was uh, Lillian. Frank Molnar's Lillian. It later became a musical called Carousel. And I get tickets to see it. And I'm taking my best girlfriend, who much later became my first wife, and uh, I'm going to pick her up in, in the car that Sid Pasternak and I bought for like $150, some Model T or A or something for it. And uh, and my father says to me the day of the event, Norman, I'm going to come early. I want you to take my Hudson Terraplane. You're taking your best girl to Westport. So he needs to get back at 2 or 3 o'clock, let's say, uh, in order for me <clears throat> to take his car in time to pick up Charlotte in West Hartford, Connecticut. And he's not there in time, and he's not there a half hour later, and 50 minutes later or whatever, I get into my Model T, and I drive, I pick up Charlotte and West Hartford, and I drive through Middletown and Danbury and this place and that place, into New Haven, and I hear honk, 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 honk. My father, having gotten home very late, chased me <laughs> and found me on the Merritt Parkway, honked, 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 we changed cars. The grandstand act, you know, of all time. B. Arthur, as Maud, did an episode where she was going to her senior prom and her father had promised to pick up from the, she had bought for the prom, her mom and she had bought a coat with a Persian lamb collar. And he gets home having forgotten it. And he gets the store owner somehow, and he gets the store owner to come back to the store, which is already closed, and he gets the Persian lamp coat, and he meets her 
on the stairs of the uh, high school just before she to go in. She, she was able to walk in with her Persian lamb coat. Now, that whole story was told in a in mud in a psychiatrist's office. You never saw the psychiatrist. You just saw his wrist on a arm of his chair. And she did all the talking, lying there, telling the story, starting with having hated her father and then remembering this story and then weeping and crying. <laughs> it, was, it was priceless. I mean, there's something about that kind of story where, you know, that parent has made themselves the hero and the center of that story in doing that act, you know. They're the ones who have failed in trying to help their child, and their child is the one who's supposed to be the center of the story, and they manage to make themselves both the hero of the story and the center of it. You know, it's right. it, it's like in some way it's your, you know, it's your dad pulling the rug out from under you. I, as often as I've told the story over the year, I've never had that thought. Nobody's ever seen it that way. It's, it couldn't be more correct. And it so fits the character. And it so amazes me that I never had that thought. Of course, it wasn't all for me. It was in a sense, all for him. That's a big insight. Now, <laughs> I want to repeat my age. I'm 94 years old. I've just had an insight in this conversation that I might have had at 50, but it took me 94 years to get to it. And I think that's life-giving, that the knowledge, that the, an insight that important can be there waiting for you to pick it up all those years. And it, we never stop growing. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Norman Lear. He's the subject of the American Masters documentary, Norman Lear, Another Version of You. It's on PBS and Video On Demand this week. You wrote uh, for years on the kind of television comedy shows that were popular in the late 1950s through the early 1970s, which were, you know, comedy variety shows that had sketches and songs in them and, um, you know, stuff like that. I love that kind of show. I miss that kind of show every day of my life. A variety show. A variety show. What, what, what thing that you worked on in those years were you proudest of? I loved, uh, I loved the, uh, we wrote the first three years of the Martin and Lewis Colgate Comedy Hour. And uh, that's when Jerry was at his, he was genius. He was so funny. I loved it all. I loved George Goble. My God, it was just great fun working with George Goble. We did a Danny Kaye special, I'll never forget. Bobby Darren. It was, <laughs> it was all good. Were you thinking about? During those years, were you thinking about families? I mean, the shows that made you a legendary television producer. Uh, oh, you know how they began? They began, two things happened in close proximity. Bud Yorkin, my partner, was overseas, and he saw an episode of uh, To Death Us Do Part. And he told me about it on the phone. And I said, oh, my God, what an idea. 
This is the British show that All in the Family was based upon. The, the, yes, yeah, it, yeah. And uh, we got to do this, I, you know. And, and Bud said, but honestly, you're not going to get this done in America. He's, well, he says this in the film. Um, which airs on Tuesday. Right, got it. And <laughs> American Masters on PBS. American Masters. But this, I love this. Phil Sharp was a friend. He was a writer. He was in New York for a couple of days, stayed with me while Bud was over uh, abroad. And he had just gone through a divorce with four kids. I was going through a divorce with one kid. I was having a very difficult time. I said, how did it go with your divorce? He said, fine. I said, fine? He said, yeah, it was simple. You had four kids. I have one. I'm going through hell. He said, all she wanted was my Joan Davis reruns. He had written and conceived the Joan Davis show, which was a major show, at a time when reruns were worth a fortune. And he just gave her the reruns, and he was free. At which moment I decided I have to do a situation comedy. <laughs> now, we did a lot of important television, all the Danny Case and Jack Benny and, you know, uh, Bobby Darren, but you own nothing. Phil did a situation comedy and owned something. So it was weeks or months or days, I don't know, after Bud called my attention to to death us to part and the two ideas came together when you saw that british sitcom did you see more than just a great show i mean did it have emotional resonance for you i i didn't see it till we were already on the air that's oh, wow. when i saw the, the 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 little piece that you saw in the uh documentary uh i remember that very well from having seen it. We were like three shows, four shows in. So in a way, like, All in the Family was adapted from a verbal description from a friend of that British show? Yes. Well, well, <laughs> Your friend because, said, oh, it's about this. And because, <laughs> because the characters came clearly to mind. Right. I, have the bro- I, I was a brother and sister, and my father and mother, and that's what this was about it. I, you know, except the sister was in that case was a wife. I I don't want to let all our time slip away without talking about some of your other shows. So l- let's take a listen to one of the other shows that my guest Norman Lear created. Uh, let's let's go with Good Times. So Good Times was uh, a spinoff of All in the Family, right? Yes. And um, in this scene, this is from 1977. Uh, Walona, uh, one of the characters on the show, is suspicious that her neighbor is abusing her daughter, and uh, uh, and she and the the mother of the child are are talking. What do you know about me anyway? Any of you? We know one thing: you've been using that child as a punching bag. That child? Is that all you can talk about? Is that child? What about me? You think it's easy raising that kid without a father? Big deal. I was raised without a father. My mother didn't go upside my head. Well, then you were lucky, baby, because my family went upside, downside, and across mine. I've had to scuffle all my life. Honey, you don't own the rights or the patent on scuffling. Right. I've been on my own since I was 16 years old. Well, that's fine for you. 
Because when you were 16, you didn't have to worry about nobody but yourself. Me, when I was 16, I was pregnant, and I didn't have a dime. But a man that ran off and left before Penny was even born. That happens every day in a week. You could have done something about it. Done something? Sister, I did do something. I carried that baby, and I made a living for myself at the same time. And I wanted to do those things. But when the baby was born, what did she do for me, huh? What did she do for me? Nothing. Whoa. Yeah. Some comedy. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> that's a scene from last week's Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Fox. Um, when this show started, it was the only African-American family sitcom on TV. Um, and I wonder to what extent you felt like you understood what that meant and what the consequences of it were at the time. You know, when all, when all this happened to me, I was in my late 40s. I wasn't a kid. Uh, I'd lived through a good deal by then. This is the first time I'm saying this because it's the first time I've thought of this. Uh, but I'm beginning to understand how much I understood that I didn't know at the time. <laughs> you know, I understood. Uh so I felt uh, they had a great sense of, uh, and should have had a great sense of responsibility, Esther Roll and John Amos especially, the parents, because they were the first parents, representatives of their race on television. And they, they had to live with that responsibility. But actors, well, I guess it would be true, producers, writers also, you have a sense of that responsibility, but it mingles with an ego, you know. And sometimes there are things you worry about for your ego's sake that you oughtn't to worry about for an audience's sake. I mean, one episode comes to mind. Uh, Thelma, the daughter, was as pretty a young woman of any race as ever existed on on a television show. And... Uh, it was natural that guys were hitting on her. We wanted to deal with that. We wanted to deal with her problem when she cared for a particular guy and what she should do. And we wanted that conversation. No intention of ever having her sleep with anybody. But we were raising the possibility. And Esther just, now two things were going for in her point of view. One, it's a it's a touchy subject, and what if we make a mistake? And she was right to think about that. That was heavy weight. And the other was we too too much fear that we'll make the mistake, and I Esther Roll, I'm going to suffer for it. So we reached a place where I sat down with the cast, and uh, and I said, in terms of the patina, I didn't grow up as a black person in this culture. And, uh, and and we listen to, we meaning the writers and I, we listen to everything else and make those adjustments and changes and you instruct us. And by the way, there were a couple of black writers uh, on the show all the years. There were, there were black writers. Uh, but when it comes to what an uncle would do or a brother would do or a father would do, or, I'm all of those things too. And I'm going to have to make some decisions because the buck does stop with me. 
and we have to do this together. You know, you win some, I'll win a couple. You know, and the way I always like to put it is no state seceded from the union. You know, it worked. Um, you mentioned the two leads of Good Times, Esther Roll and John Amos. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was after the, in between the third and fourth season of Good Times, John Amos's character was killed, or he was killed in the premiere of the fourth season, and he was, uh, I think, fired. Yeah. Um, and I'm presuming that you're the one that did the firing. I did. Um, is that a, is that a choice that you would make again, if you if you had the chance? Well, well, yes, because I felt I had to, and uh, you know, and John felt it too. I mean, he didn't, as I remember it, he didn't care, uh, or he even wanted out. the The fact is that several years later. I mean, I don't know because I'm trying to figure exactly how many years, but some years later, I wanted to do, I did do another show called 704 Hauser Street, which was a black family moving into the house that the bunkers occupied. And uh, I needed a father. There was no better one than John Amos. So I asked John Amos to come back and work again, and he did. so I feel very positive about he has his problems, <laughs> and I'm going to give you a demonstration of his, uh, you know, how he uh, worked with one of his problems. On 704 Hauser, we had to do a pre-shoot, uh, something I don't recall what it was, the day before we went into the, the live studio, the, the stage, stage to do the live portions. That we, I mean, the portions we were going to do for a live audience. So he worked one day, and then the next day we got onto the stage. The next day he uh, was going to be a little bit late because he was going to the barber shop. He was getting a haircut. When he came in, he was bald. He had had every hair in his head shaved. I viewed that as the middle finger of middle fingers. And it took two days for some geniuses to make a a wig that looked, you know, perfectly looked like John Amos. But I have no explanation for that. We did seven of our houses. We did six or eight episodes. It didn't work. Uh, And it was my fault that it didn't move too quickly with a couple of things, I think, if I'm right. Uh, But I love the show. And he was great. But he gave me those two days. It must have been hard to be doing that, especially when you had, you know, at the point when you were, you know, moving between rehearsal spaces, (laughs) running six shows at a time or whatever it was, that you realized that um, at some point you, like, you couldn't rule by fiat even though you were the boss. Um, purely, and you had to manage all of these really sensitive issues, not just as they turned out on camera, but as they played across this world of dozens of people, dozens of artists that you were working with. Mm -hmm. Was that a question? Yeah, I mean, uh uh-huh was a fair enough answer to it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I guess it was more of a prompt. It was a. If I think I if how I, did it feel to be in that position? Well, I I write I said in the book, and this is what comes to mind now. Was it stressful? Exceedingly stressful. But it was. I, I think there was stress, and there was joyful stress. Understand that every single time, every single problem show or episode or whatever, the wind-up was a performance in front of a live audience and laughter. So (laughs) the fact of it all is every time it ended in laughter. So, I mean, if that isn't joyful stress, I don't... it's the most unusual uh, demonstration of joyful stress because it can only happen in this uh, in this situation, and that's what I lived through: laughing at the end of every problem, and all of us clapping each other in the back and hugging each other at the end of a show. I, I have one last question for you, and uh, I'm sorry that we're very nearly out of time. It's been a so much fun to get to talk to you. Um, there is this brief... No less fun on this side. Thank you. Uh, there's this brief allusion in the film uh, to one of your first jobs, which was working at Coney Island. Um, I watched this American experience that I think Rick Burns made about Coney Island one time, and I'm just like totally obsessed. Um, and one of the most amazing moments in that is you know, Al Lewis, who is famous as Grandpa Munster, uh, worked at Coney Island for years as a young man, and uh, and and he offers some of the patter that he had for his various jobs. And I wonder if any of your jobs oh, at yeah. Coney Island had patter. Yeah, I I uh, one of the jobs was barking with a megaphone. Uh, there were two. Uh, booths uh, where you could have your picture taken. Six for a nickel. Six poses for a nickel. It's a bargain. And uh, I, sell themselves. I and my megaphone was saying, hey, hey, uh, it's six for a nickel, five cents, the only place on the island. Hey, little girl, you ought to be in pictures. Come on. And uh, I, I remember that part of that rap. I also worked for a guy, and uh, he was cooking corn in a barrel and uh, selling the corn. And No, I, I, I barked a little for him and then helped. He stopped me at one point, and as if he was teaching me the lesson of lessons, he said, uh, you're putting the butter on first. You put the salt on first. The reason you put the salt on first is the butter is more expensive than the salt. When you put the salt on first, you use less butter. Put the salt on first. I have never had an ear of corn without thinking of that since. (laughs) And if he was a thousand percent right, the difference could be 30 cents over 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) I got to tell you, like, you're 94 years old. And, uh, you know, you do a fair amount of press for various things. Here's a free tip. Anytime anybody asks you what you've learned in your 94 years, give them that corn stuff. 
and at 94 nobody's going to nobody's going to get up in your face about it they're just going to nod like that was that's the wisest thing they've ever heard like <laughs> pretend to write it down <laughs> that's a keeper norman lear <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. What an honor to get to talk to you. It was the pleasure of pleasures. How many people in those stadiums? I think we're look, probably looking. I mean, it depends on what the – like if it's a University of Michigan stadium, I think that's like 125,000. It's like a couple of them. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's like four or five candlestick parks. That's fabulous. <laughs> and it took them every split second of their lives to hear this conversation. And every split second. I'm so fascinated with that thought because it suggests that the moment is everything. Yeah, either that or that everyone listening to this is throwing their life away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Norman Lear uh, is the subject of uh, a new American Masters documentary. It airs Tuesday night on PBS. That's the public broadcasting system. Uh, You can find it in your local listings. At 9 p.m. At 9 p.m. Thank you. Thank you so much. The American Masters film Norman Lear, Another Version of You is out on PBS and Video On Demand this week. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Riz Ahmed, spent the last decade or so pursuing two careers, one in acting, one in hip-hop. His work's been controversial, funny, subtle, kind of stuff critics love. And it's been successful because of that, or maybe despite that. He moved from British independent movies like the suicide bomber comedy Four Lions to a big supporting part in Jake Gyllenhaal's Nightcrawler. Just recently, he played the lead in HBO's acclaimed The Night Of. Later this year, he'll co-star in the new Star Wars spinoff, Rogue One. All this time, he's also been working on his music. He's a guy who often talks about his very specifically British-Asian experience. He's coming out with his third album. It's actually a a collaboration with Heems from the group Das Racist. Their duo is called the Sweatshop Boys. The album's called Cashmere. Here's a track, T5. Trump want my exit, but if you press the red button to watch Netflix, bruv, I'm on. I run the city like my name's Sadiq, not the Syrian city of the beat. Some all I want to preach, but that's beat. I shut them up like sheep on Buckwheat. Oh no, we're in trouble. TSA always want to burst my bubble. Always get a random check when I rock the stubble. Riz Ahmed, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, man. Um, did you, uh, did you always MC? Um, yeah, I guess so. Not always. Um, that would be really impressive. But, um, but no, from like my teenage years, I guess it was just quite a natural way to express yourself in the environment I grew up, um, in London and in that period of time as well, when our kind of MC and culture really started kind of going up a gear. Um, with the explosion of jungle garage and and, and grime um, and the kind of mainstreaming of underground UK hip-hop as well and and the kind of explosion of pirate radio stations. So I'd go and MC on local pirate radio. This is before internet radio, so it would be like somewhere in a council estate. Someone would have an antenna and illegal kind of, uh, um, you know, transmission equipment and and just be broadcasting, you know, radio and you try and get a slot on there and play at local raves and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was just a kind of 
a natural thing. It was something that was around a lot and it just felt exciting. And as a young, restless, like hyperactive kid, I was just not very naturally drawn to it. I was just in uh, London doing this show, actually, and uh, talking to a friend of a friend who was... She had been a, a commissioning person at the BBC Comedy, and she had been a culture studies major in school. I was a culture studies major in school, and we were chatting about our respective theses. And um, I did mine on identity strategies in hip-hop, and uh, she was like, oh, you know, mine was about the South Asian community in the U.K. and the way that uh, hip-hop identities kind of transformed immigrant identities in the 80s and 90s especially. Um, And I thought that was really interesting because there is not much of a parallel tradition in the United States. Yeah, Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, like I wonder to what extent like uh, being what we call in the States ahead, like being down with hip-hop and hip-hop culture um, was an extension of, of the culture of the people who looked like you that were around you. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, I think you're talking about the different kind of South Asian experience in the U.S. and the U.K., and I think there is quite a pronounced difference, and it really comes down to class. I think uh, a lot of the kind of South Asian migration to the U.K. is the kind of blowback of empire post-World War II and then accelerating the 60s and 70s as uh, you know, Pakistan and Bangladesh destabilized and you had civil wars and stuff like that and, and cyclones and whatever. And and so what you have is kind of a largely, although not completely, this is a generalization, a kind of working class, uh, you know, wave of migrants to the UK. Um, a lot of people that came to work in factories, that kind of thing, people who kind of whose heritage maybe is from, from rural backgrounds. Whereas in the U.S., I think the stipulation imposed on South Asian migration was you have to have a kind of master's or a Ph.D. or above. So you have a lot of people coming over, becoming doctors, engineers, professors. And so you've got a very different class profile. And um, I would say that the South Asian experience in the U.K. is more akin maybe to the, again, generalizing to like the the Hispanic or uh, Latino experience in the U.S., by which I mean our kind of socioeconomic position is probably comparable to the Latino experience here. And also the way in which we, both those groups, are kind of really entwined into the fabric of the societies that they live in. They really kind of built those countries, but still somehow remain strangely culturally uh, unassimilable, or at least perceived as such. Um, which, again, kind of weirdly comes back to class and how much people hold on to their, you know, th- th- that heritage. Um, and so I think there, there were quite different experiences. So the idea of, like, South Asian people, people like me, being, like, thugs or, like, you know, being a credible uh, voice for, like, working-class hip-hop, maybe that's kind of alien to American listeners, but it's really not in the UK. You know, you, you know, you, there are South Asian neighbourhoods you wouldn't want to get lost wandering around in the UK. It, it, it's, it's just different in that sense. So given that we had that kind of class profile, the kind of you know, the music of people like Tupac or whatever, that resonated with us immediately, immediately. And and so actually it's a lyric that I've got on Half Mogul, Half Mowgli on the Sweatshop Boys album is, you know, growing up, our only heroes were black rappers. So to me, Tupac was a true packy. And that definitely did kind of mould and shape and influence what, like, the young South Asian, emerging South Asian identity was in the 90s. In the 80s, you had this generation that was like, OK, we came over here, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're being hosted. 
you know, we're guests here. And our generation was like, well, we're born here. This is our country. And we need to find a kind of like language and, and, and symbols to kind of um, express that, that, that kind of defiance in the face of those who said we're not welcome and go back to where you came from. Something often we heard, like, go back to where you came from, was like, well, this is where I come from. This is my home. And and so that African American experience, and, and, you know, as expressed through hip hop, really, really resonated with us. I, I want to play uh, one of your solo tracks um, from a tape that you put out this year uh, under your hip hop name, which is uh, Riz MC, uh, and it's called Englishstan. This is England. God save the queen. Now she ain't made for me, but she keeps my paper green. Plus we made the sea on this little island. Where we all surviving, politeness mixed with violence. This is England, the bridge we're living in. A kitchery simmering, women in hijabs, syringe pop stars, and the promise of a Patel as a man you star. With the money you make and the man you are, standing opposite, so we drink too hard. The banks rob you, and the news is half the truth. Wrapped up in boobs and arse, pigs hit kids, so bricks hit windows, and a high street burns with broken dreams and herb. Only thing you can't find in Tesco is that and a sense of worth. So hide behind the benzyl furs, go online to find friends or perf, but click the wrong site for a free trial later, detention first. You know, uh, the culture of England and especially London, and especially those parts of England and London uh, that aren't white British people, have generated like huge revolutions in global music in the last, whatever, 30 years. Yeah. Um, I think in film and television, there's a sort of compulsion to look backwards. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it actually goes beyond music. If you look at our literature, you know, whether it's Zadie Smith or, you know, I'm going to go ahead and claim Salman Rushdie even though he lives in New York. I kind of feel like, or, or visual art, you know, I mean, people, artists like Tracy Emin talking about her kind of, you know, Cypriot background is central to her work. Um, or Chris Ophelia. You know, across all kind of art forms, I think that kind of tapping into the goldmine of our multiculturalism has really served us well and allowed our work to, to kind of travel and, um, and speak globally by tapping into specific experiences that are kind of, um, that, that kind of represent the, the kind of hybrid global culture that we live there, in. There right? are these pathways that were, you know, these... these uh, bilateral relationships that were established by the colonial history of the Absolutely, UK. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that 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 kind of that empire has shaped the modern world, you know. And so, yeah, I agree that there's there's definitely kind of been I think we punch above our weight culturally, the UK, um because of our multiculturalism and and how we kind of mine that. But you're right, in film and TV and theater that doesn't happen so much. I think it's for a few reasons. I definitely find it really frustrating and I actually think it's a real missed opportunity because I, for one, refuse to believe that our best stories are behind us. I think they're happening right now and they're ahead of us. So I think um, there's lots of reasons, but ultimately none of them are good enough to prevent us from tapping into what has been such a, a strong point in other art forms. So, uh, yeah, I think that's that's really you know an insightful observation and like I find frustrating. There's, there's just not a ton of parts for Pakistani guys in Downton Abbey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although that is that is one of my one of my lyrics. I'm not happy until I'm in white face on Downton Abbey. Um, 
Yeah, so I think it is. I think I mean, it's I'm tricky. Not, I'm not going to play Riz. I kind of like Downton Abbey, but... Yeah. Uh, well, you're growing a big old beard there. You're going to take snatch some of my roles soon, <laughs> too. So just calm down. No, um, I, I think you're right, man. But the thing with, with uh, even those period dramas and historical shows is even they kind of uh, are based on a kind of erasure of our true history. Um and then, so I think we have this kind of slight denial about who we are as a, as, as a country and as a place in Europe and actually the reality. Um, and and I, it's, I think it's interesting that kind of at least the idea of America, although maybe social mobility is, you know, as messed up for, you know, lots of people of color over here, the, at least the idea of America is one that can absorb difference and, you know, the immigrant story. When I, when I was in the UK, uh, I went to see a few comedy shows and... Um, you know, I got to see some of my absolute favorite comedy performers. Who did you see? Um, I saw Josie Long. I saw my friend Josie Long. Yeah, I Long. went to university with Josie. Oh, well, Josie Long is awesome. one of the best. And I saw Stuart Lee. Stuart who's a, Lee. Who's he's my favorite. Us. Yeah. He's, he's the king. He's really brilliant. Oh, my and, God. You know, Stuart Lee stepped on stage, and he's workshopping his in the, in the U.K. Stand-up comics tend to do – I'm explaining this for the audience, not for you. But in the U.K., stand-up comics tend to put together a show – take it to Edinburgh or whatever, and then tour it for a year, then put together a new show. Mm-hmm. And he was workshopping his new show. And he came out and said, I've got to do 15 minutes on Brexit or else you guys are not going to let me do the rest of the show. Mm-hmm. And Josie's show was completely about the existential crisis that Brexit brought on for her. Um, and uh, it, it just seemed to be defining like just buzzing in everyone's you know hunching everyone's shoulders tightening everyone's latissimus dorsi <laughs> everywhere and i wonder how how it affected you um it was really or is affecting you yeah it was really a shock i think london voted overwhelmingly to remain in the eu i think london as a place is just a bit more comfortable with the idea of immigration I don't know, it's, it was a shock, man. It was a slap in the face. It was a wake-up call, this kind of, like, liberal progressive consensus amongst, like, you know, the media and people in power can't hold against the tide of dissatisfaction amongst generally white working-class people. Um, and, and, and also it was just kind of, to me, what really hurt about it so much was that so much of the Leave campaign was based on such blatant lies and lies that were exposed as lies during the campaign and immediately backtracked on after the victory. And that we were led into leaving by people who didn't really want to leave. You know, a lot of people say Trump probably doesn't even want to be president. He just wants to raise his profile. Well, dude, if you become president, what then? You know, what's your plan? And it's a similar thing with the Leave campaign. I think many people, no one really thinks Boris Johnson wanted to leave. And it it is very strange. For the first time in my life, I question whether there's a long-term future um, for people like me in the UK. You know, I always felt that there was a kind of very neat narrative symmetry to the idea of, like, you know, British Empire goes to South Asia, lots of South Asians come back, you know, the, the, the symmetry of it, and now we make this home. And but now I'm kind of thinking maybe the UK was just a pit stop. You know, maybe it's just a pit stop on some kind of tribe of Israel kind of wandering, you know, diasporic journey. Well, your your family, you described you as Pakistani, but um, your family was Indian living in Pakistan, right? That's right, yeah. Um, they are originally from North India, 
Uh, and when Pakistan and India was created, well, Pakistan was created in 1947, a lot of Muslims who were living in India were made to cross over and now live in Pakistan, which was a country set aside for Muslims. Um, but that that group of Indian Muslims were often not accepted in Pakistan and are still, you know, my ethnic group, the name of my ethnic group is Muhajir, which means refugee. And that's, that's the actual name of our, my ethnic group. And we're not, I mean... That's, you know, that's a group that's been, you know, played a massive hand in founding Pakistan. You know, it's it's so this idea of kind of like uh, not necessarily being very welcome where you set up shop, it isn't a new one. Um, But but I think it's. uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's just what's happening after Brexit. It, when I felt really kind of really started catastrophizing, I started thinking this is like the 1930s or something in Europe, you know, where you've got rising inequality, political polarization, you've got the systematic scapegoating of a minority. That's like, I'm stuck Am I living in like Berlin in, in the late 1920s and I don't realize it and I'm a Jew? Do you know what I mean? It's like you start thinking, hang on a minute, if, even if it's cool for my generation, what about my kids, my grandkids? Because, I don't know, I have this fear that once the cat gets let out of the bag, it's out of the bag. You know, it's like whether Trump wins or loses, he's legitimized something that's hard to put back in Pandora's box. It's like... So, I don't know, I I worry about that. But then I also just think, well, you know what, this stuff's cyclical. There's pendulum swings one way and then the other, and, you know, maybe things will work themselves out in the wash. Do you hope that the the identity... And, you know, uh, with Brexit and with Trump, there are you know, many sources, but the part that's about identity and race, do you worry that that, or do you ever hope that that is a death throw, that this is 67-year-old people, uh, no offense to 67-year-old people, but (laughs) 67-year-old people who are lashing out that their way of life has ended, that their, you know... Their position of privilege is now under threat. Exactly, and their position of privilege, especially relative to, uh, you know, a a lack of other kinds of privileges in society, Mm. um, that they're losing their gender or race privileges (laughs) uh, and didn't have a ton of class privileges. Mm. Um, That's just the last explosion of an old set of fireworks. Yeah, I think that's... that's, uh, I do agree with that analysis that it is partly a generational thing, but then I kind of... realize that it's it, i think it is a class thing i think ultimately the a lot of these um you know kind of xenophobic and racist views that are coming to the fore and being legitimized right now i think they are they're based on legitimate grievances even if they're not being expressed in ways that we think are you know right um and i think we need to address those ultimately there's a lot of people that have just feel left behind by globalization a lot of people just feel, you know, screwed over in what's happened, you know, with the financial crash and how it was caused and how it was dealt with. I think that's all legitimate. And I think if it starts feeling like, um, you know, we're all in it for ourselves and we don't come together as a society to try and take care of those you know, underlying economic issues, then it's like, well, of course people are going to resort to tribalism, basically. It's, we're seeing the rise of tribalism because... You know, we're being told there's not enough to go around. When there is, I think. I'll finish my conversation with Riz Ahmed after a break. We'll talk about his role in the new Star Wars movie, Rogue One. We'll also talk about why he believes blockbuster space movies, 
can actually be a powerful force for good here on Earth. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. If you ever wondered what podcast should I listen to, The Big Listen is ready to help. On NPR's newest podcast, host Lauren Ober introduces you to podcasts you might never have heard of and gives you the inside scoop on shows you already love, like Nerdette and the one you're listening to right now, Bullseye. When you want something new, find The Big Listen on the NPR One app and npr.org slash podcasts. Are you easily confused by terms like cultural appropriation, cisgender, and woke? Or maybe you find yourself constantly explaining terms like these and you need a place to vent. Do you have a love for all things pop culture, social commentary, and politics? Sounds Sounds like like you you need Minority Corner. Corner. Where you can learn, laugh, and play. Sounds like Blue's Clues. Only it's more black, gay, and ladylike. James and Aneke will happily administer your weekly dose each and every Friday. You can listen on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Minority Corner. With the K. Because the C was taken. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor and hip-hop artist Riz Ahmed. His new album, With the Sweatshop Boys, is called Cashmere. We'll get to Star Wars talk in a few minutes, but first I, I want to play a clip from uh, the first movie that I saw you in, uh, a movie called Four Lions that was written and directed by Chris Morris. And this is essentially a terror cell farce. Um, it's about a domestic terror cell in the UK that, um, and, and it is a goofy, silly movie about these guys. Puffin says, find a target. Well, we've got a target, bro. We're all agreed. What is it? It's the mosque. What? Yeah, bomb the mosque, radicalise the moderates, bring it all on. Okay, right, no, I like that. I do like that, that's brilliant. Because let's take out a bunch of Muslims because they're the real enemy. Aren't they better? Once we've done that, why don't we truck bomb a kebab shop? And, and fly a jumbo jet into Wadger's mum's head. Why don't we get a pig and staple gun it to our foreheads? But if we bomb the mosque, it'll make all the Muslims rise up. My cousin, my cousin Faz died defending a mosque in Bosnia. Did he flipping rise up, bro? Let's bomb boots. They sell condoms that make you want to bang white girls. I second that, boots. <laughs> I had forgotten about that line. <laughs> um, it seems like uh, one of the interesting things about your acting career as it's uh, proceeded has been you mostly managed to avoid uh, the traditional bad guy in an action movie part for a Pakistani actor. Right. Um, Although I'd love to play a Bond villain. That's on the table. Yeah. Just so everyone knows. Uh, and you kind of went from parts where race was essential, but uh, there was a critical view of the role of race and identity and religion um, to and you've sort of stepped up the ladder to the point where in the night of uh, the HBO miniseries in which you recently starred, you played a character whose race was certainly part of his identity. It was not the classic sitcom ethnic best friend part where he just happens to be not white. Um, But it was not the essential 
part of the story. It was not the basis of the story. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wrote about this a little bit in my in my essay recently, which is about like, you know, you get these stages of representation sometimes of minorities or groups that aren't that visible. First of all, you get the stereotype, which is like, you know, the shopkeeper, the 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 um the terrorist, the cab driver. Then you you know, then you get the stuff which takes place on ethnicized terrain, as you said, but it kind of subverts those dominant narratives, maybe. So that's like Four Lions or Road to Guantanamo that I did, which is like, OK, we're going to engage with the war on terror. You know, this film has brown people in it because it's about some of those issues around brown people specific to them. But we're going to kind of maybe try to challenge some of the assumptions that the group is, is burdened with. And then then you get to this point where you're just a guy and you could be playing anyone. Um now, I kind of think that it's great to be kind of um, free of racial stereotypes or free of having to constantly address racial stereotypes, even if you're kind of challenging them in your work. You know, that can feel like a burden. Um, but I think that I don't think necessarily that playing like someone called Jack or Bob is necessarily up the ladder compared to playing someone called like Abdul or Rahim. I think it just feels like that because playing Jack or Bob is so often closed off to people like me. I don't think like deracinated portrayals are the holy grail. You know, ideally you could have, you know, the sitcom best friend who is called uh, Abdul. You know what I mean? And it's like, and you engage with the fact of his of his cultural identity, but it's not it's not about that. You know, I really love the way like, you know, uh, Ross and Monica were Jewish in Friends. They're like, they were, they were Jewish. That was a thing. But it wasn't about that. You know, um, it was the way that, and, and if you kind of do that enough, then you can fully embrace the cultural specificity of the characters without it becoming like a marginal niche kind of movie. So the way that Woody Allen has always kind of explored, you know, um, this kind of like, this, this circle of like, you know, uh, uh, upper class Jewish Manhattan kind of you know the social circles you do that enough you just kind of bring it to the center stage of the American story it just feels like it belongs there at the heart of the American story or what Scorsese did with Italian Americans you certainly kind of you know engage with the specificity of that experience but if you do it well enough and you do it consistently enough and regularly enough it stops being a thing and I think that would be pretty cool if we can get to that point you get to be a spaceman in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I don't know where that I don't know where that plays out or these all stages. I, I wa- so the only you know this you're you're going to be in this uh, Star Wars movie that comes out in the uh, winter, and uh, so all I know about this movie, uh, besides that I'm I'm real glad Forrest Whitaker is finally getting to be in a Star Wars movie. That guy's always been He's the amazing. ultimate spaceman. Yeah, um, but uh, finally it was just. Space Ghost Dog is what I'm hoping for. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but uh, you, di- I, so there's like one line of your dialogue in the trailer for the Star Wars movie, and you're doing a voice that is neither an American accent as you did in the Night of, when, where in which you played an American guy, right? Um, nor I think your ordinary speaking voice, at least, it didn't didn't sound like it. Right. So how do you choose, without getting into plot elements of Star Wars that I'm sure you're contractually obligated not to talk about, how do you choose, like, what is the cultural position and, like, talking of a spaceman? Well, I mean, people... (laughs) 
You know what I mean? But, I mean, in Rogue One, I think pretty much everyone shows something close to their accent. So it is uh, kind of rooted in a kind of, you know, British RP accent. Um, Wait, what's an RP RP accent? is received pronunciation. That's like is, the Queen's English? That is, yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a touch of that. Um, like... I think maybe it might not be sent, make a lot of sense to play him as like a Cockney geezer kind of thing. Like, um, but we kind of played it. Initially, we close. should explain your character. Initially, it was Dick Van Dyke was cast in the role. <laughs> they needed someone to come in. Yeah. Firstly, just for ADR. Right. And they went, actually, <laughs> exactly. let's put him in the picture as well. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. We kind of just play it roughly close to ourselves, and then the kind of like just the character and uh, the characters and the way they kind of conduct themselves and interact with people. I don't know. It just kind of some that will kind of start guiding you in its own way, and you know your voice will go up or down, and you'll carry a certain amount of tension or not, and you know, and and so that kind of stuff has its own weird alchemy that 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 kind of just does its own thing. But as a starting point, I think we all kind of went with something close to our own accents and i think that's also because rogue one is uh kind of aspires to be a slightly different kind of star wars movie that feels a little bit more gritty a little bit more real you know the way it was shot uh director of photography greg like shot films like zero dark 30 um you know gareth edwards our director would actually often operate the camera himself handheld so there was definitely a sense of trying to make it feel kind of for real. My guest on Bullseye is the actor and MC Riz Ahmed. His new Sweatshop Boys album is called Cashmere. Do you have feelings about Star Wars? Like, was it a, was it a thing for you? It wasn't like a huge, like, I wasn't, I mean, I would say I'm a Star Wars fan, but knowing how big, Knowing how fanny Star Wars fans can be, right. I take that with a pinch of salt. Like, I'm um, not asking you to get in a nerd contest with anybody. Yeah, right, exactly. You never win lose. that. You no, never would, win that not. on the internet. I mean, I, to be honest, I, my relationship with it was quite... Um, I mean, it was one of the first films I remember seeing. I saw it with my brother on VHS. Um, and it was just the images from that were seared onto my mind and they inspired me and me and my brother started like running around the house with a notebook writing down like film titles like you know the king jumps forwards or whatever you know after watching Empire Strikes Back and just like act out these films um so it kind of like it started my career um as a little kid play fighting around the house um but I didn't really get what was going on I was like young so I didn't even really understand the stories. I was like, oh, Ewoks, cool. You know, when I, I went and watched the first new Star Wars movie, or the first new, new Star Wars movie, yeah. Star Wars number seven. Yes. And um, the thing that was maybe the most vivid was thinking about when that first trailer came out and John Boyega took off his uh, Stormtrooper helmet and was black. Hmm. And... It's such a vivid illustration of white privilege that, for me as a white guy, it never occurred to me that all those guys were white. Right, yeah, yeah. Until you get that rush of recognition tempered with the idea, oh, right, this is the 21st century. Hmm. I mean, it's whatever century Star Wars is in. Don't, don't email me. But, like, this is a world where there's going to be some representation you know, there's going to be women and people of color and things like that. Yeah. 
And that was so vivid when set against those feelings of nostalgia. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think it's very powerful as well. And I think it's really, I think it's the right thing to do on so many levels. Whether you want to be cynical and look at it from a business standpoint or whether you want to be an idealist and look at it as a kind of like, you know, the role of art is to stretch empathy, to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So let's make sure there are lots of different kinds of pairs of shoes that people can step into. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's about time and it's the right thing to do. And I think a franchise like Star Wars can really help lead the way with something like that, you know. And so I, I, I really respect you know, what Kathy Kennedy and, and that whole team at Lucasfilm have decided to, to do and to go in that direction and just going, you know what, I, I want it to be a girl. I want, a, a, I want it should be a girl at the center of seven. That's amazing. And, and that sends such a strong message and kids will grow up just seeing the world and the world of magic and the place where dreams live as a place where people who look all different kinds of ways can also live, you know. I think the fact that it's kids too is really significant because I think as a child, uh, you receive those kind of messages about uh, uh, about dreams and identity hmm. very uh, unconsciously. Yeah, you know, in a way that maybe you don't so much when you're 27, you got a college degree in it. Of course, yeah. I mean, when we were when we were growing up, every time there was like a, you know, a brown face reading the news or on TV, you know, my mum would call us from the bedroom. Come downstairs, come downstairs, an Asian person on TV. You know, it was, it was like a, it was a big deal. Well, Riz, I mean, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me, man. Riz Ahmed is half of the hip-hop group Sweatshop Boys. Their new album's out now. He's also the star of HBO's The Night Of. And he's soon to be seen in, among other things, the upcoming Star Wars film, Rogue One. Every week on Bullseye, we try to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. So there used to be three TV networks, four if you count PBS. Now, I guess the idea then was that if you got the chance to make a TV show, it had to be pretty normal, like pretty regular. Even now, TV shows are pretty normal. I mean, Kevin James just got a new show. Apparently, it's basically the same show as his old show, which was, at the time, about the same as, like, six other shows on that network back when it was on. It's not even that it's bad. I mean, Kevin James is pretty funny. It's just that if you're looking for strangeness, TV's a tough place to find it. That, I think, is why I love blunt talk on stars. Blunt Talk was sold to Stars, which is a premium network that you might not even have heard of. It was sold to Stars with a pretty simple premise. Seth MacFarlane, the guy who created Family Guy, was making a sitcom with Patrick Stewart from Star Trek. Based on that, Stars bought two seasons. And then MacFarlane went out and hired Jonathan Ames to make the show. I feel like I'm in a weird cultural position. Guy who knows a lot about Seth MacFarlane and Jonathan Ames. But um, I'll just explain their partnership by saying that it's surprising. McFarlane shows uh, American Dad and uh, Family Guy and so on. They're, you know, they're gag fests. They're cartoons. Ames writes literary novels, mostly. 
But a two-season commitment meant or means that Ames, a TV writer who literally does not have a TV, uh, he actually goes to his friends' houses to watch his show. Ames basically gets to do anything he wants, and he definitely does anything he wants. The setup of Blunt Talk is that Patrick Stewart is a cable news talk host trying to change the world with this crew of misfit producers. And that is, like, in itself a pretty straightforward pitch. But the execution of that straightforward pitch is like nothing else on TV. I'll give you an example. The other week I was watching, and this was the main plot, the A plot of the episode. One of the producers is in love with another one of the producers. The Lovebird producer agrees to get a colonoscopy live on TV for a health segment. And he's nervous, so he takes a borrowed Valium from the sex addict who lives in the host's office. Sleeps on the air mattress. But he accidentally gets mescaline instead of Valium, and uh, he ends up with a camera up his butt, having a conversation with a hallucination of the good bacteria in his innards somewhere. And uh, all the bacteria look like him in a stretchy black suit, sort of like Woody Allen, uh, dressed up as a sperm and everything you've always wanted to know about sex. Anyway... In this conversation, the gut bacteria convince him to profess his love for the other producer that he's in love with on live TV. And I swear to God, all of this really happened on a real television show. Now, let's move on to the transverse colon. One fact a lot of people don't know about the transverse colon, that it differs slightly from the colon. People don't know that in Who are you guys? Please tell me, who, who are you guys? We're your good bacteria, Chief. We keep things healthy down here. What are you doing? We're not supposed to talk to the Chief. Yeah, well, there's never been a camera down here before. This is our chance. Chief, we've all been talking, and we think Celia's the one. Hold on to her. Don't ever let her oh, go. Oh, no. Okay? Coming in. Run. Run. Oh, 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 no. Oh, no. Chief. Chief. Little Jims! Jim, 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 you okay? What's going on, Doctor? Jim, are you all right? Jim, are you okay? Yeah, I'm more than okay, Celia. I I just had a scary vision, but I love you. Every cell in me loves you. Look on air, Jim. The show's totally full of this stuff. Patrick Stewart's character has a manservant. It's a guy he saved in the Falklands War. And the manservant is constantly attacking Stuart by surprise, like in the Pink Panther movies. Oh, also the manservant is a porn star. All of that. Real stuff from the show. Stuart's character has an air mattress in his office. Because if anything goes wrong, he and his senior producer lie down on it and spoon. Every one of the episodes of Blunt Talk is like a lotus flower, opening to reveal some new sexual curiosity or hyper-specific neurosis or bizarre turn of events. It's honestly, it's awe-inspiring. Major, I advise against this. This woman is a sex addict. Shh, don't be ridiculous, Harry. There's no such thing. Also, my analyst encouraged me to meet someone. This is part of my treatment. I liked it better when he gave you cocaine. Oh, stop pouting, Harry. Oh, also, season two of the show, in addition to all this stuff, full-on Chinatown-style noir mystery. I wanted to meet you out here so that we could speak safely. I think I'm being followed. 
and my phone and my email may be compromised. That sounds serious. What have you got involved with? A colleague of mine at The Guardian came to L.A. several weeks ago. He was working on a massive climate change story going around the world to different drought regions, uh, Somalia, northeast China, Syria. And now L.A. Well, fascinating. I would like to meet him. Well, that's not possible. He's dead. The cause of death was listed as autoerotic asphyxiation. Really? Mm. I've never understood its appeal. But then... I don't like eating by myself. Walter, that's not it. I'm afraid it was murder. Who killed him? I don't know. He was onto something very corrupt here in L.A. with the water and got himself killed. Now I think they're onto me. I'm so glad you came to me. I am going to help you in this. Look, there's shows where weird things happen, random things, crazy things. That's half of Adult Swim. Sometimes that's the family guy. Whatever. The shows always seem to have this perspective, kind of nihilist maybe. Not quite destructive, but more like dismissive of people, of relationships, of the rules of the worlds they create. The weirdness is random and kind of cynical. What's special about Blunt Talk is that it's about caring. It's about this group of people who love each other. This weird, fake family of people who love each other in the presence of their weirdnesses. Not despite their weirdnesses, not because of their weirdnesses, but because they're people. It's an acknowledgement that we're all weird. That when we present normalcy, we're presenting a story that's every bit as fantastical as a guy talking to his colon bacteria. The point of Blunt Talk, this weird, silly show, is that we can just love each other for who we are. I think that's why I love Blunt Talk. Also, I really want one of those cuddling mattresses. Uh, Kevin, producer Kevin, I know you're new, but can we spoon after this? That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, a show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Producers Kevin Ferguson, Christian Duenas, production fellow at Maximum Fun is Kara Hart. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for giving us our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Hey, Bullseye is going to be live in Chicago on November 17th. It's part of the Chicago Podcast Festival. We're going to have some pretty amazing guests. Andre Royo from The Wire, the brilliant, brilliant, so hilarious comedian Dwayne Kennedy, uh, our friends from Lady to Lady and other MaximumFun.org podcasts. They're so funny. Uh, more stuff still to be announced. Tickets are on sale right now. Visit MaximumFun.org. Find the ticket link on the right-hand side and buy them. November 17th, Chicago. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture. This week's host, academic and DJ Oliver Wang. Hey, Oliver, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week we talked about celebrity pets, so the pets of celebrities and pets that are celebrities, and this included everything from Leica, the tragic Russian space dog, to Bubbles the Chimp, to uh, the differences between cat and dog movies. Sounds good. Find Pop Rocket wherever you download podcasts. I listen every week. It's funny and insightful every time. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.